0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: You may want to sit down for this one because you're going to think this next story is fake. You are going to think that something bizarre is, that, that it's not, it can't possibly be true. Let me tell you what's going on. Because you will hear this and think, well, this is George Orwell. This is 1984. This is fiction. This is not. This is what is going on in China right now. With the aid of a massive facial recognition surveillance system, all computerized, all technically advanced, uh, very high-tech, and apparently, reportedly, an astounding 176 million video cameras. Listen to that. 176 million video cameras throughout the country. Citizens there are now being monitored every time they leave their home. I'm not making this up. This behavior, what they do then outside their home, gives them, through the computers that collect all this data, a social credit score. You can do good things that will boost your score, but any behavior, no matter how minor, that falls outside the rules, lowers the score. Parking illegally, jaywalking, uh, littering, anything like that would lower your social credit score enough, and you could eventually get to a point where you're banned from many of your freedoms. You can't take the train. You can't buy a house. You can't send your kids to school. You won't be able to buy things. And it gets worse because who you spend time with. What your shopping habits are, how you spend your time, all go into your social credit score. Everything you do basically is being picked up by this Big Brother-style system. You can imagine where this would go and how this could be used or abused. And, And by the way, CBS is reporting that by 2020, when this thing is fully integrated, there could be up to 600 million cameras capturing people all over the country. Gordon Chang is a widely sought-out expert on Asian politics who's lived and worked in China for many years. Uh, he, uh, he now speaks all over the place on this region. He joins me now. Gordon, thanks for doing this today.
2: Thank you very much, Scott.
1: When I read this, when I read these stories, and there's many, many stories online about this so people can see that I'm not making this up, it's so extreme it almost sounds like it has to be fake.
2: Well, unfortunately, it is true, and it highlights a major trend which we don't think too much about, and that is China's moved from authoritarianism back to totalitarianism. You know, with Mao Zedong, who founded the People's Republic in 1949, it was a totalitarian state. Um, under his uh, successors, Deng Xiaoping, Zhang Zemin, Hu Jintao, you know, we saw China become a little bit more open, and especially in the economic area, but also in, in the social area as well. Now, under Xi Jinping, the current ruler, it's really gone back to a totalitarian system. And, and that is, um, has all sorts of implications for the Chinese people. And indeed, what they're doing, um, which has been very successful now, is something that we could see other states try to do as well.
1: And I want to get to that. First off, though, this essentially, because you can determine, if you're the government, you can determine what's good, what's bad, what's allowed, what isn't, you can essentially guarantee the Communist Party will always be in power from now on.
2: Maybe. Okay. Uh, What you can do is, uh, you can certainly um, say that uh, today the Communist Party can um, do all sorts of things. So, for instance, it can find out if you're jaywalking. It can tell you where you have been over the last couple days, That, yes, that they can do. But, you know, essentially, although they can uh, under have all this information, at some point people just rebel Um, because what's happened in China is, with the system as coercive as it is, you have a pretty unhappy population. Um, There's a lot of anger. And and we can see this when fights break out on the streets, where you wouldn't see this in, for instance, a, a Western liberal democracy. That's because there's a lot of repressed anger here um and the society is going to become much more repressive so i think that essentially yes it, it does help in the short term in keeping a communist party in power but it could become so much so that it actually encourages people to uh, strike out and, and also the other thing that it can do is it can uh, certainly decrease the creativity in society which would have economic effects which I think could aggravate some of the things we're already seeing in terms of an economic slowdown. So there are a number of reasons why this could undermine the Communist Party's hold on power as opposed to actually strengthening it. So, what
1: ha- okay, so this system is in place, and again, this is not an exaggeration, and I would encourage people to go look up social credit and China. You will find all kinds of stories. This, will, you'll, you'll see what we're talking about. But if you do some bad things, and when I say bad, we're not talking about killing someone. We're talking about jaywalking or littering or whatever, and your social credit score starts to drop and you get on the blacklist, what happens to you?
2: Any number of things, and you pointed out several of them. The story that has grabbed people's attention is this one individual who was not allowed to buy an airplane ticket and get on a plane, um, which sounds sort of extreme, but um, you know we can see that what's going to happen will be, um, as the things you said, you can't buy a home. Maybe you won't be able to um, buy food. Who knows what they're going to try and do with this. But we know that the government is um, obsessive about this which means they're going to use it more and more. So it's not going to be just uh, refusing transportation. They'll figure out other things that you will not be able to do.
1: Well, and, and what struck me about this as well is one of the things that it says is that they will take points off. If you're dealing, if you're hanging out or spending time with someone who is considered a poor social credit that will reflect on you. So they can essentially, families may have to snub family members because you don't want to get put on the same list. You can create pariahs of people very easily in this society.
2: Yes, and the one thing you said, you said, you talked about how a person outside of his home um, is constantly monitored. Well, people inside their homes are monitored as well through their phones. Um, So, for instance, there are social media postings that can be done at home. Those are certainly monitored. Um, and so we were getting to the point where, you know, in Orwell, they had that big television set, which was a camera. Um, who knows? That could very well be the next step for China.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. I'm
1: talking with Gordon Chang, who was an expert in the China, North Korea area of things and politics, about this system that has been put in place in China right now, 176 million cameras, presently watching with facial recognition software, and giving citizens scores based on their behavior. It's not a joke. It's not a Hollywood thing. It's real. And Gordon, when this thing is supposed to be fully operational by the year 2020, which is what they say, if they're doing this now, what's going to be the case? What's it going to look like in another two years?
2: Well, you know, in another two years, they'll just have more ability to track people. I mean, they'll be able to track people everywhere. Um, and so, um, at some point, you know, the technology just allows them to do all sorts of things. And indeed, um, you know, in, in a Chinese state um, where the officials are, are obsessive anyway, um, extremely coercive, that they'll just continue on until um, people push back.
1: And you mentioned that that eventually they may rebel. The, the The tricky part, the difficult part about this is, if it's just a few people rebelling, that's not going to. It would require a huge society-wide rebellion against this, almost, for this to not just get stronger and stronger.
2: Yes. I mean, it's it's, it's when the Chinese people believe that either they get hope or they just lose all hope, either end of the spectrum. You know, people, uh, society is at risk. And we saw this, of course, in 1989, where you not only had a million people in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, but you had demonstrations in, like, 173 other cities at the same time. So that's really the model that um, the Communist Party is worried about. Now you can, they can, uh, with this technology, with their social credit system, they can prevent people from um, uh, believing that they have any hope. But every once in a while, we know that in every society, that things just break. But uh,
1: the difference, though, here, and and I don't want to disagree, and and you're, I'm sure you're right, but the difference here is with this now all being computerized and with it all in a data bank the computers will continue to monitor your social credit score so even if you rebel could they just not shut off your bank accounts and shut off your ability to travel and essentially shut down your life
2: well yeah if for one person that's right but they can't do that for millions of people okay um, because then the system just breaks down and and that's really the problem the other problem here for china long-term uh, is that people are, if they can live in a free society they will and I think this will encourage even more Chinese to leave you know we're seeing uh, for instance in the city where I close to where I live New York you see a lot of Chinese on the streets and these are guys not with photo cameras around their necks or you know with guidebooks these are people who actually are now living in New York um, so there is um, there's a real concern and once the society becomes too repressive you'll see much more of this so there are a number of ways that this can actually come back and undermine China. And matter of fact, if you've got 600 million cameras, this gets extremely expensive. Um, and uh, it, Beijing already spends more on internal security, they say, than on the, for the People's Liberation Army, which is an indication that this is becoming a heavy burden on the Chinese central government.
1: I know you have to run. Uh, one more quick thing, though. You said right off the top this could be an example or a, st- a case study for other places. Could this ever happen here? Could you ever imagine outside of China this happens anywhere else?
2: Well, there are a lot of other societies that sort of where your leaders admire um, China's ability to control people. Um, you know it can be a place like Kazakhstan or wherever, but this certainly is. the only reason why this wouldn't happen in Russia is because Putin's government doesn't have money. But if they had money, they would be doing the same thing. So if the oil prices go to back to one hundred and forty dollars a barrel, you can probably see more surveillance in Russia. But fortunately, you know, we're now only at 60. Hopefully it'll go down a little bit more, and that would mean that Putin would not be able to afford this.
1: Gordon Chang, uh, listen, always appreciate having you on. Uh, He is the author of a number of books, Nuclear Showdown, The North Korea Takes on the World. One of these times we've got to talk about North Korea again, but uh, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for your time tonight. And thank you so much. It is, look, I would encourage you again, I, I cannot strongly enough encourage you To go online sometime today, even while you're listening to us, if you want to do two things at once, and type in social credit score China, and you will get all kinds of stories from all kinds of news sources, credible and I'm not sure, but CBS News and Newsweek and all these ones, they've all done this, they've all been there, they've all looked at this. This is truly one of the terrifying outlets, examples of technology run rampant when you are now going to have 600 million video cameras across china that are all focusing and they all have facial recognition software again if you go online you can find the stories with video you can see how it works they're very proud of how this the the companies anyway how these work as soon as you step outside your home you are now being data on you is now being gathered and you are being monitored and everything you do is being graded and scored and your ability to buy, to live, to hang out with people, to travel, to do anything is based on this. It, just imagine the repression that's under. And, and once this is able to be perfected, once it's right across the country, just imagine what the government can do to control people. It is a stunning, unbelievable thing that somehow has largely, until very, very recently, flown under the radar. It seems the Western media is now catching on to this. It is terrifying and it's amazing to think that they've been able to get this far without much oversight from anybody outside saying, wait a second, are are you serious? But this is where we are. Go read it. It is uh, fascinating and terrifying all at the same time.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML.
1: How old were you? If you bought a house ever, if you've ever owned a home, how old were you when you bought your house? Think about that for a second. What were you doing for a living? How much money were you making? How much did your house cost? These are all things that are relevant questions today because we do live in different times. The housing market is definitely different than it once was. Jobs are different than they once were. And a new study by the Ontario Real Estate Association takes all those factors into account, or at least as it was talking to a lot of millennials about their whole, their dreams of home ownership someday. And came up with this study, came up with the numbers, and I got to tell you, it is a bleak picture. Younger people are feeling pretty pessimistic about the idea that they will one day own a home. Many are saying it's just not going to happen. It is too expensive. It's unlikely. The costs are through the roof. Uh, this is something, this is not new, this is something we've known about for some time now, although these numbers are certainly bolstering this, but with a provincial election looming, this is certainly an issue I would expect that is going to be getting some traction and be something we're going to be talking about. Tim Hudak is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. He, You may know him even better as the former leader of the provincial Conservatives. He joins me now. Tim, thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, of course, Scott. Thanks for having me back on the show. Well, I'm looking at this study, this poll you guys did, and I can't imagine that anyone was surprised to hear that millennials are somewhat pessimistic about owning a home someday. And you
3: totally get that, right? Because millennials will be following all the rules that previous generations followed. You go to school, you pay down your debt, you get a good job. Next step is, you know, you own a home. You get married, you have kids, right? That's the usual path. But for the first time now, uh, Scott, in 130 years, that story has been badly broken and millennials are on the losing side.
1: And, and I want to reaffirm what you just said there, because oh, there are often uh, people, I think, fairly or unfairly, mostly unfairly, who would say, yeah, well, you know what, They're, they don't want to work, whatever. Now this, you're talking about people who have finished school or doing educa- getting education. They are trying to better themselves and live and do the same things we did.
3: You, you got it. So let me be some more specific here. So I'm, I'm not talking, you know, 19-year-old, early 20s that, you know, are back from school to bag a, a laundry and use furniture. I'm talking 25 <laughs> to 34-year-olds, right? So they're they're adults. They, they've done their school. They're into careers. And for the first time, Pew Research Foundation has shown that millennials, 25 to 34 again, their most likely form of housing right now is Still living with mom and dad that has not happened since 130 years ago I mean, we're talking little house on the prairie right when those families all live together in a shack that is a shocking change from what we've expected as part of the
1: canadian dream in your poll and that's one of the numbers that really jumped out at me and i thought there's no way this can be true that half of 25 to 34 year olds are living at home that 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 yeah. number is accurate
3: yeah, I mean, it's, it's just less than half. Uh, it's in the uh, mid 40s. They rounded up to, uh, to half. The most dominant form of living arrangements right now 40 uh, some percent for millennials is living with, with mom and dad. And there, our poll shows that they're frustrated. Obviously, so. They've followed all the rules that you're supposed to follow, that our parents tell us to follow for success, yet they still cannot reach that bottom rung on the housing ladder to find a place they can call their own. We've launched a campaign that you can see at keepthedreamalive.ca, again, keepthedreamalive.ca, that encourages millennials, their boomer parents, whoever, to get involved and to tell all political parties, as we had the election campaign, to do something about it.
1: When did this really start to be a problem? I mean, are we talking the last two or three or five years, or is this back 20 years now?
3: I think it's been a slow build, but it's accelerated through the 2000s, right? So you've got uh, income growth, which has not been great. It's been decent, but the uh, housing price growth has far exceeded that. The reason really for that, Scott, is that we have artificially limited housing supply. In 2016, we built half as many new homes as we did 10 years earlier. So you've got more people, millennials now, the big generation trying to move out of mom and dad's house. You've got a lot of new immigrants coming to southern Ontario, other Canadians because our economy is doing better than most of the rest of Canada. And you've had, you know, low sustained mortgage rates. So There's a lot of demand in the market. big problem is government has limited supply. So at KeepTheDreamAlive.ca, we lay out a number of solutions for government, including lowering the taxes you pay when you buy a house and also increasing housing supply and choices in supply-focusing on that first-time buyer.
1: And I want to get to those solutions in just one second, but I also want to back up for one moment here because it's not just millennials. As I was reading through your numbers, it's not just millennials whining, if we want to say that. Uh, 60% of non-millennials are saying their neighborhood is unaffordable right now.
3: Yeah, you're seeing it across the board. Again, you've got more demand and we've got less supply, so more people chasing fewer and fewer available homes. Uh, that means that prices go up, and it causes a lot of frustration and aggravation. In fact, if you go to keepthedreamalive.ca, you can see an ad. It's pretty heart-wrenching. It's a young couple uh, that are trying to get into the first home. They want to make an offer, and then they realize that they just can't afford it. and Their dream is shattered. It's, It's moving, but I think it speaks to the real agony that a lot of people go through right now in Hamilton, Niagara, and throughout the province.
1: I have a question about the way the question was worded, though, and I may be misunderstanding what is said here, but it says that um, seven in ten young Ontarians agree or somewhat agree home ownership is unaffordable in their neighborhood. Are we talking about the fact that they are in mom and dad's house and they are saying that I could never buy a house in this neighborhood? Because that would suggest Mm. that, you know, mom and dad may be onto their third house after working for 30 years to get that. Is that what we're talking about? Or is it in the neighborhood where they live in an apartment in the basement somewhere?
3: Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And, you know, I think it reflects the individuals. It was a 2000 uh, sample. So you've got a broad range of Ontarians, whether millennials uh, or not. You do raise a good point that a lot of millennials are living with mom and dad. They may think that way. They may think of the neighborhood that they're going to move to. But there's other underlying numbers that show this is a big concern. Like seven out of ten millennials say that they will vote for a political party or are highly attracted to vote for a political party that will address this home ownership issue. We also compared this, what I call the millennial trap, right? Played everything by the rules and everything right, still trapped at home with mom and dad, so, 70% of those, no more than that, those in the millennial trap, they identified getting a home as the top issue right next to the environment. It placed Scott ahead of health care, ahead of jobs, ahead of education. Homeownership is a big issue,
1: and they're willing to vote on it.
0: You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Chatting with Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, about a new poll that's out saying 7 in 10 young Canadians, young Ontarians, millennials are feeling very pessimistic about the chance that they will someday own a home. And Tim, just before the break, you were saying there are some potential solutions to try and help mediate this or make this work better. What would some of those be? Walk us through some of the things that could fix this.
3: Yeah, you bet. So we lay out the whole plan and a ton of research at keepthedreamalive.ca for folks who want to see more. Um, But basically, here's here's the three solutions in a nutshell. Number one, the level of taxes you have to pay. Look, I think after alcohol and tobacco, housing is probably the highest taxed item. So I know governments are pressed, but why don't we look at first time home buyers and increase the rebate they get from the land transfer tax when they buy a home or eliminate it altogether. Is that gonna solve all the problems? No, but it's a big step forward because that's cash at hand. You can't put the taxes on a mortgage. Number two, increase housing supply. The more houses we have, particularly the first rung, the starter homes, the better it's going to be for millennials. And third, change the mix. So it's something we call the missing middle. It's kind of like mid-rises in cities like Hamilton, maybe stacked townhouses in Grimsby or Oakville. These are ideal for two reasons. Number one, it's more affordable for starter homes for millennials or new Canadians. But number two... It's also really good for, like, my folks, right? They want to stay near the grandkids. They don't need the family home anymore. They move into a smaller spot, and they free up the traditional family home for somebody else.
1: The One of the things that was mentioned also in this poll is that the, what, the I think it was the greatest barrier that was listed was the ability to save the amount now needed for a down payment. How, how would you change that? Because the rules have changed as far as how much you have to have, and it's now for a lot of people it would be a huge amount of money that's, again, it's sort of daunting to think how much I have to have before I even talk about buying a house.
3: Yeah, that, that's a great point, and certainly the actions we've seen from government when it comes to the affordability crisis have actually made the situation worse. So they brought in new taxes, they made mortgages harder to get and more expensive. So number one advice I have to government is, you know, stop piling on, you know, just just stop making the situation worse. On the uh, cost of making a down payment, single biggest issue identified by millennials, no doubt about it. But lowering or eliminating the land transfer tax, that will help a bit. There have been other states and provinces that have looked at some sort of assistance for down payments, like an interest-free loan to help people get their foot in the housing market. And we all know that once you get in the door, once you get your first house, it's easier 100%. to move up the ladder.
1: 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I know you got to go in just a second, but ha- when this, if this is going to be an election issue, and, and I think it could be and I think it probably should be, it has to somehow gain some traction how does it gain traction? Because there's a lot of things vying for people's attention and vying for the the three or the however many number parties are running. Um, it, there's a lot of things vying for their attention in this election. How does how do you get this onto the front burner?
3: Yeah. So look, uh, number one, I appreciate being on CHML, and I'll say it again: is Keep the Dream Alive. Ca. People can see the ad. They can spread it out through social media. That's number one. Secondly, you know, I'm the CEO for the Ontario Realtors, right? These are 70,000 realtors who believe fervently in the Canadian dream and and keeping it alive. So the realtors uh, have uh, gotten behind a big advertising campaign. So it'll be social media, it'll be online, as well as TV ads to try to uh, drive this message. But the most potent force here is if, you know, average citizens, consumers, millennials get together with the realtors and get all three political parties to put something on the table.
1: I got to let you go. I know you have a family commitment, but uh, we do have an election starting. Are you missing getting geared up for that, or are you quite okay doing this? <laughs> uh, it's
3: actually a nice break. Man, 21 years, right? I mean, six elections. It's kind of funny. You know how when you leave university or college, you still feel like, oh my God, there's an exam I forgot about. You dream about it for years after, right? Because that yeah you, you kind of get the itch, but no, after uh, 21 years and six elections, I've... Uh, I had a, had a great time, and it's much more relaxing
1: being on the outside <laughs> than being in the crucible. I'm sure it is. Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this.
3: Thank you for yours. Have a good evening.
1: Uh, if you have, I mean, it's a difficult thing. Let me bring in Ben here for a second, because Ben, who's on the other side of the glass, he's pressing all the buttons today and making sure the show stays on the air. Uh, he falls into the the very end of the millennial category. He's almost into the next generation after that, whatever they call that. Now the, what do they call that now? Gen Z, I think. I've heard that thrown around. I thought that was a girl's name, Gen Z. All right. Anyway, um, I mean, do you, is this something that falls into your plate of concerns that you will someday own a home or is this not something you think about or is it something you've given up on?
0: It's something that I've considered. Like I, I give it thought of, well, I'm
1: going to eventually have to either purchase or rent. I feel like I'm going to have the ability to, at some point, I don't imagine it's going to be an easy venture. But, See, I almost think that yeah. it will be easier for you than it will be for some millennials. Cause we've got the baby boomers who are now getting up in years, some of them, and eventually they're either going to sell or not be here. And those houses are going to go on the market and you start getting enough of those that start pouring onto the market again. We know how supply and demand works. I, your generation may actually be be better off than the one who is the millennials who are fighting for it right now. Well, I mean, I am only 19, so I look forward to seeing what the future will hold because you don't really know where it's going to go. It is scary, though, if you are one of those millennials. And again, uh, to reiterate, we, you know, we poke fun sometimes, we tease sometimes, we make some quips sometimes about millennials. But what Tim Hudak was talking about in this case and what this survey was talking about is not the 19-year-old who's dropped out of high school to go party all the time goes, oh, dude, I need a home. They're talking about people who have gone, finished high school, worked hard, gone to university, got a degree or two, tried to do all the things that you should do to better your life and are still struggling. We would not be having this serious conversation I wouldn't be if it was about the first ones who are just the partiers who now suddenly want to get a house and they want it at a good price and they don't and they think someone should buy it for them. That's not that's not what this is about. This is about people who are doing all the things right and still can't. I'm sure we'll be talking about this more.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 only on 900 CHML. It's your birthday today.
1: Scott Radley Show, 900 CHML. So, why that song? Well, I got to tell you, there is someone's birthday today. My daughter had her birthday, has her birthday today, which is terrific. I am a lucky guy. I have a wonderful daughter. If I were to tell you all the things about her, I'd be here all night. She's in nursing. She teaches therapeutic riding. She works with a child who has severe disabilities. She does all kinds of amazing things, works with horses. So happy birthday to Victoria. She's great. She's the best daughter you could have. Why bring that up? Well, because I want to say happy birthday to her, but also because what do you eat on your birthday? Well, you either eat cake or some form of cake, correct? You're going to eat something birthday-ish. Now, I'm reasonably sure no one is going to match this, but there is a guy who is an American guy who is one of the world's leading... And I'm 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 almost hesitant to talk about this cuz it makes me uncomfortable in a sense but he's one of the world's leading competitive eaters. He is one of these guys who now he's not the I don't believe he is the Nathan's hot dog competition kind of guy. That's a that's like a true competition thing. This guy's more of a an an exhibition kind of thing. He'll go online and do videos of insanely exorbitant gigantic eating challenges that he wants to do. And I've seen some of them before, and almost always I end up with a sore tummy just watching. But let me tell you what he did and posted online this week, which simply, I don't know, my tummy hurts, my head hurts, uh, my conscience hurts because I know how many people there are who don't have food around the world. But anyway, we're not going to get into the deep dive into the that side of things, although you're certainly welcome to, because again, I do have a difficulty with this. Anyway, guy's name is Matt Stoney. Sat down on Monday, Ben. How many cupcakes with icing with sprinkles, the whole package, like not not, and they're not the little one inch across, one bite brownie size things, like a cup a legitimate cupcake, fully dressed. How many cupcakes do you think this guy ate in a single sitting? of 8 minutes and 55 seconds
3: 132
1: you are not far off wow he ate 125 cupcakes in 8 minutes and 55 seconds in under 9 minutes he ate 125 cupcakes as someone who feels like they could probably be close to that i don't come not, on not 8 minutes oh yeah i totally could you could maybe eat 10 maybe no. Maybe you could eat 10. I could do way more than that. Well, we're, we're going to test it one of these days. We're, every July the 4th, we do the cupcake compet or not the cupcake, the hot dog competition here, and it's always, at, you haven't been here for one of those days yet, have you? Not yet. No, we've had we've had Luke, when he was in your seat, and he was a colossal disappointing failure. I mean, he's a big man. He ate three hot dogs in eight minutes. It was just, it was like watching... Pavarotti to stand up on stage and then have his voice crack. It was just so horrible. And then we had, I think, Will, who's in here on Fridays, was in that day. I think it was Will. Anyway, and that was a disaster. So you're going to be on the hook to see this year. But there's no way you could eat more than 10 cupcakes. I'm telling you. Anyway, he it was 12,000 calories worth. Okay, I, I I'm not so interested in trying this anymore. <laughs> he ate... 50 of them in the first two minutes and then says, yeah, then it got tough. Then it got tough. Uh, His quote was, I was stuck in the tornado of sugar, which I understand. Of course, you know, like if he had been diabetic, he would have killed himself with this, literally. Anyway, 125 cupcakes. He's done other, I mean, I say he's done a million of these different eating things. I don't know how he hasn't died yet. Uh, One of the ones that was just totally disturbing was, you know what peeps are? Oh yeah, those are great. The little Easter yellow marsh- marshmallow bird chick yeah. things. Uh, he ate 255 of those in one minute. Not in a minute, but I could probably get close to I that. I couldn't even get that many into my mouth in a minute. Even if I was able to swallow the speed, that's that's putting four in every second. More than four every second. So he's just shoveling. He's not even like trying. It's just I, handfuls. Oh oh Yeah. And then there's, there can't be chewing. So he was like, I'm sure the next day he was passing intact peeps, which is equally disturbing. But this guy, 125 cupcakes in one sitting. I, I simply can't fathom how a human being could put that much food into them. And again, I understand this is disturbing on a lot of different levels. Uh, especially when you think of the people around the world who don't have food. I'm not unaware of that issue. That's a conversation that we should be having. We won't be having it today, but 12,000 calories in 8 minutes and 55 seconds. It's amazing. The talents, quote, quote, some people have. I will not be doing that with my daughter's birthday party tonight, tomorrow, whenever we have our cake. It will not be 125 of them. If we have cupcakes, if we have a cake and I'm actually able to eat two pieces, I'm doing well. Even if she asks really nicely. I might be able to jam 10 cupcakes down, but that would be the extent of it.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML.
1: Thursday evening, the Hamilton Bulldogs will be going to Sault Ste. Marie. Up to a very difficult building to play. And they've been the best team in the Ontario Hockey League all season. The Sioux Greyhounds have. They've been a terrific team. They are the heavy favorites. Well, heavy. They are the favorites going into this championship series. And the Hamilton Bulldogs will be trying to win their first Ontario Hockey League championship in 42 years. First one since 1976. What makes it, as I said a moment ago, more remarkable, however, is that this team has only been in Hamilton for three years and arrived here not exactly as a powerhouse. This has been a team that has been built from the bottom up in a very, very brief period of time. David Branch is the president of the Canadian Hockey League. He is the commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League. He joins us on the show tonight. Uh, Mr. Branch, thanks for doing this tonight.
0: Hey,
4: my pleasure. Good to be with you, Scott.
1: Uh, it, it's not quite the same, but when you look at what's happened with the Bulldogs and how quickly they've turned this thing around and turned themselves into a really good team, any similarities you see with Vegas? Because that's, that's the great story in the NHL right now. Do you see any similarities there?
4: Well, uh, listen, Vegas is a story unto itself. It my is. Goodness. I, I don't know if sport uh, at most levels have ever seen such a happening, and that's... Uh, such a special special time for them and when you think too though on the other hand with Hamilton and the Bulldogs and the work that Steve Dales and Michael Anlar have done uh to to in a matter of three years to build a, a championship team contender uh it speaks volumes as well and it's certainly one of the storylines here as we move into our championship series
1: when you okayed that move for the Belleville Bulls to move to Hamilton, did you expect this? Did you expect that they would be able to turn it around this quickly?
4: Well, you know what? One thing about junior hockey is that, you know, change can occur rather quickly uh, if you have the right pieces and the right people in place. And getting to know uh, Mr. Anlauer, uh, recognizing the work he had done previously in other leagues, and then Steve Stales, I've known for a number of years, and when he joined the organization, you knew they were in great hands. And then adding John Gruden as the uh, head coach, uh, certainly uh, that gave you a sense that they were going to be uh, a force to contend with going forward, but I'm not suggesting in the matter of, of three years that would have necessarily been the case.
1: You have been around junior hockey a long time, though. You've seen teams do things well, and you've seen teams do things not so well. What has Hamilton done right? What have they done that has allowed them to make this process happen so quickly?
2: Well, as I said, Scott,
4: it, it's a very uh, simple formula, and, and that's having the right people in the right spot. And, uh, and that's the case, from the ownership to the management to the coaching, and, and, and then they put the right players in place. But the challenge is getting the right people, and uh, moving forward and being able to identify uh, the type of young people you would have as part of your program. And they've got great leadership on the ice. They've uh, got a lot of talent. Uh, you know, they play the game the way the game being played today with uh, speed and skill and, and all the things that uh, we enjoy that makes hockey so special today and at our level, junior hockey, You know, it's never over till it's over. And and that's another exciting element that we are very fortunate to have as part of our program.
1: There is certainly, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with you, and I think most people would, the organization that has been put in place with Steve Steyos and with John Gruden and all the rest has done a great job here. There's also a question, and I, I, resources. Certainly the owner now, Michael Andlauer of the Bulldogs, has deeper pockets than the previous ownership did. How much of a factor does that become? Whether it's just being able to hire scouts or whether it's hiring trainers or the building, how big an issue are resources in junior hockey?
4: Well, I mean, resources, no matter what you do, are are extremely important. Um, That said, our league is built uh, with a sense of fairness and uh, competitive uh, elements that really allow markets of all sizes to compete and do very, very well, uh, provided they have the right leadership. I mean, it's important to us that an Owen Sound, by way of a market size, can compete with a Kitchener or a London and similarly, that uh, Sault Ste. Marie uh, can can compete with southern Ontario markets. So it's uh, our league is structured that way in terms of the programs we provide to our players, our scholarship program, and other, other benefits that come with it.
1: When you look at what the Bulldogs have done now, and, and again, they're still new, but in your experience, do runs like this, do experiences like this generally work as far as building long-term fan bases can can a, can a playoff run like this have a significant long-term impact on building the numbers that will come out to games do you believe
4: absolutely uh, i've seen it time and time again scott and uh, that's the other exciting element to this as uh, we return to hamilton uh, a market that has incredible history rich in tradition in junior hockey and to now have uh, the opportunity to play in the championship, to win an OHL championship potentially, I mean, it'll excite, it'll ignite, it'll be a, a real force to provide impetus for the franchise to continue to grow and evolve, and I think the other thing that we have seen in our league is that, you know, there used to be the general idea that, hey, if you won the championship one year, then that meant you probably you know had a bit of a sag in your fortunes going forward, but our teams are so better managed and coached than uh, in years gone by that you don't have the, the, the you know variance from one year to another in terms of team success. And I think that's good because I think our fans they, they love to see a competitive team. They have a team that they you know want to be able, be proud of and, and hopefully see uh, go down the playoff trail and, and uh, have an opportunity to, to get to the Memorial
2: Cup.
1: Well, an arena is a factor in this. I know that the arena was cited as one of the main reasons why the Memorial Cup was not going to be held in Hamilton this year. Michael Ann Lauer, the owner of the team, has it's, it's very public. He's been in front of City Council. He's talked publicly about wanting to have a new arena. Is the league involved in that at all? And in an advisory capacity, in speaking to the city in any way, does the league have a role in that? Up until
4: this point in time, we, we have not played a role. Um, it, it really is with you know, the team, the owner, and the city to work through, other than as a league we can reinforce and back up uh, our experiences and the importance of uh, the arena facility and what it means and what it brings and provides, you know, uh, success to a team uh, as to spectator interest support, uh, et cetera, et cetera.
1: What would you I mean if, if you had a vision for it and you've again you've been around, you've seen all the different size cities, what is an ideal OHL size rink for a city like Hamilton? Is it closer to London? Is it closer to Kitchener? Is it closer to Guelph? What what would you imagine would be the ideal place?
4: Well I, I think first of all it, it depends somewhat on market that you're in and the market size. I mean you don't want to put an eight or a nine thousand seat building into Owen Sound as an example. But when you consider the market and uh, once again uh, the history of junior hockey in Hamilton and area, uh, you can now look at an an arena that maybe should be anywhere from I don't know six to eight thousand for sure, and uh, possibly nine. But I don't think you really want to be much more than that, so as to you know create interest, create demand and uh, allow the, the franchise to sustain itself
1: and there certainly are places around the league that you can see perfect examples of that when you when you come up with the perfect size arena for the city it works
4: oh no question and that's been one of the great things and good fortunes of our our league going back about 20 years ago when we started to uh, see communities and our teams working together. the benefit of creating new or refurbished facilities and and my goodness i mean we went from having a lot of old facilities to we're very very fortunate and you just have to look at guelph and kitchener refurbished the way it is and you touched on london and windsor and sarnia and kingston and oshawa and niagara i mean you just go on and on and on and uh, they've all played such a significant positive role in uh, making the franchise uh, viable and successful.
1: You had the uh, OHL draft, the priority selection, you call it, uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, three weeks maybe, I can't even remember. Uh, And that's always a big moment for a lot of the kids who come in and the teams can rebuild that way. One of the stories that came out of it, though, and it was a story that came out of the London Free Press shortly after, um, they got a bunch of draft picks that were guys who were, I think, mostly are all Americans who said to the reporter, we were only ever going to play for the London Knights. We would not go to any other team. And I think you probably understand this got the hackles up of a bunch of people who said, well, wait a second, what's going on? Is there anything that can be done about this if players decide they just there's only one team they want to go to? Is there anything that a league could do about that, or do you just have to live with that?
4: Well, I, I mean, we live in a new age where people have rights, and, you know... Uh, options and i think you have to respect those and that's where we talked about facility we talk about the importance of ownership and coaching uh, you've got to make it so that your franchise is attractive uh, to most if not all people and i mean these young players you're referring to had been selected by london uh, they're young 15 year old boys talking to the media uh, I, I meet for the first time in some instances and I'm sure that, you know, in their mind, they, uh, really felt that it was the right thing to say and they really felt it, that it was important in this case to have an opportunity to play in London. But you can look around and there's a number of comments that, uh, in and around that day are made by other players in, in a, other situations. So it's an exciting day, uh, for families. And, uh, I'm a great believer that, hey, you take the player, you sell them on your program. And, uh, you know what, more often than not, you you can be successful to attract uh, the talent to to your program.
1: So is that the answer, then, that if you want to get those players to come, you raise your program to the level that London has, and then they'll want to come to you as well, equally?
4: Well, I mean, that's if you say London is the best program. Okay, fair Uh, fair enough. You know, they're certainly uh, at the top. Uh, They've proven that. Uh, But we have other programs that are... I think just as attractive and just as successful, and offer as much, uh, if not more, in some instances than say uh, London, uh, etc. But uh, it's good to have a, a, the London's and other franchises because they do raise everyone's play to make sure they can compete.
1: Uh, just got a couple of minutes left here. I don't know how often I forgot I neglected to look today and I should have done this. Do you know how often you end up with a championship series where your two best teams, the first in the East and the first in the West actually end up as the champions? I can't imagine it happens that often. <laughs>
4: you know what? That's a great question. I chuckle a little bit, Scott, because I was thinking the same thing. You know, when you look at how both the, you know, the Bulldogs and the Greyhounds mirror each other this year in terms of performance and uh, winning and capturing their respective conferences. So uh, I don't know, but we'll get our people to work on that because that is a, a real uh, I think, good piece of information that well, we should be able to share with everyone.
1: I just don't think it could possibly happen all that often, because there's always upsets, there's always somebody who knocks someone out, but it, it has worked out perfectly. Certainly here in Hamilton, it's worked out perfectly. I I don't know if people here were hoping Sault Ste. Marie wasn't going to be there, but it certainly makes for the better story.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, the, the true test in many people's minds is you know how well a team does during the regular season, and it's a credit to both the Greyhounds and the Bulldogs, that they finished first. And then to move on through the playoff trail and, and emerge, it's, it doesn't happen all the time. But it just shows you just how good these two teams are and how it's lining up to be, I think, a real outstanding special championship series.
1: Yeah, I'll let you, i you—I got to let you go, but you did mention the regular season, so I have to ask when, and you know where it's coming, I think probably because it's been a bugaboo of mine, when is the Hamilton Spectator Trophy going to be awarded to Sue this year?
4: <laughs> well, no, no, I'm not surprised to hear that question. I mean, uh, basically, since we, we uh, went to two co- distinct conferences with a very distinct, unbalanced schedules, we recognize that they're Hamilton Spectator Trophy winners. Uh, we value that trophy. We value the history and the tradition. But it really has taken on a different meaning when you consider the variance in you know the teams that the Greyhounds would have played this year as opposed to... Uh, the Bulldogs as an example.
1: Well, if you decide to, my colleague Terry Pekoski, who I talked to before I came on today, who will be up in Sault Ste. Marie, has generously volunteered to give out the Spectator Trophy. (laughs) if you if, while she's there but listen I, I certainly understand your answer and it's a uh, uh it's one of those things that we've wondered about for a long time so we have an answer now so that's uh, that is good uh yeah, dave and, sorry go ahead and
4: this, and this marks the 20th anniversary of our uh, two distinct conferences and so it's a, a special year in that uh, sense as well scott that we are playing our 20th uh Eastern Conference versus Western Conference Championship.
1: Well, and as I say, you got the two best teams, so it works out rather perfectly. Uh, David Branch, the president of the Canadian Hockey League, commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League, a man you will see, I assume, handing out the championship trophy to somebody in a week or so. Uh, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this.
4: Hey, I've enjoyed it, and I'm really looking forward uh, to seeing the championship series, so thank you.
1: That is, uh, that is, as I say, David Branch, the guy who runs junior hockey for a large measure in this country. The Hamilton Spectator Trophy thing I asked him about, just in case you're wondering. Every year for, I don't know, since the 60s, I believe, the Hamilton Spectator Trophy, a trophy sponsored, given by the Hamilton Spectator once upon a time, many, many moons ago, has been given out to the team that finishes the regular season with the most points. And they still do it. They still give a banner, as Mr. Branch said. They still give a banner. You hang it in your building if you finish first. The Sioux Greyhounds got it this year. But for reasons that he just explained now, but have been a mystery. They haven't actually presented the trophy. Now, even his answer, which I I respect, and it's an answer, if they still award the banner, I think they should still give out the trophy. But the trophy's been in lockup. It's been somewhere mysteriously not given out for a number of years now. So we're still working on getting the trophy handed out. It didn't sound like he was buying my offer for Terry Pekoski to give that trophy out in the the Sioux this week, but she is there. She has said she would do it as a representative of the Hamilton Spectator. She would go to center ice and hand out that trophy to the Sioux Greyhounds. We will wait and see. I'm not holding my breath, however. Final start, Thursday evening at 7 o'clock, Thursday, Saturday in the Sioux, Monday and Wednesday, back here in Hamilton, if you are inclined to go and see a game or two. Uh, Sean wrote in, uh, got a number of emails, but Sean basically says uh, he works both games. This is a problem, I think, that they may have. People are working during the week, but he would love to go. Uh, a number of people actually said that in their emails, and a couple others said that they will be looking forward to going, so we will see.
0: The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 DHML.